Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 20. They were at the tail end of a formal treaty review. The big hollow display over the table showed a large version of it, and I saw they were reading from the Havelina Reduction Agreement. One side or the other occasionally interrupted to clarify various details of the document in standard layman's terms. The general slant of the conversation seemed to be about understanding how said details might be interpreted and acted upon in the field by career military or administrative types without any legal or diplomatic training. It was important to know if an alleged violation was due to one person's mistake or to the standard procedure of an entire organization. This was some pretty dry stuff, but they took it very seriously. As soon as the review was concluded, a few minutes later, the holographic document floating before us was replaced by an animated graphic depicting a flag that spun slowly about on a central axis. This flag bore the national symbols of both the Alliance of Interstellar Nations and the Montero Transstellar Commercial Federation, one on one side, one on the other. It seemed to imply a warm, cozy relationship between the two neighbors. An aide at the table stepped out. No one spoke to me, though both sides chatted quietly among themselves. There were glasses and carafes of water on the table. I poured myself some. My mouth was very dry. A couple more minutes went by like this, that fear singing inside the whole time. The double doors opened eventually, and that aide returned, followed closely by a short, stocky woman who looked to be in her mid-sixties or so. She had close-cropped silver hair and tired lines across her face. At least that's what I thought the lines were, until she sat down and I could see her in better light. They were actually facial scars. She had seen some deep action at some point, probably at many points, and she'd never had cosmetic work done. Fleet indulged in a certain romanticism about battle scars, I knew. Their recruitment ads invariably showed at least one or two soldiers sporting the scarred look. Usually far less than this, though. Admiral Dussane brought up her own Tri-D image. Now that I was actually paying attention, and unlike the big image hovering over the center of the table... 
Her display revealed itself to be polarized to her point of view only. Looking around the table, I couldn't make out what anyone was seeing. I'd never heard of such a thing for Tri-D displays. Though hardly likely to change the galaxy, it was certainly clever. Fleet was good at clever. The seated officers muttered among themselves for a bit. Then the Admiral peered around the room for the first time, eyes finally settling on me. Is this him? She asked one of the captains, who confirmed that I was. Mr. DeSantos, you're an Ain citizen, are you not? Yes, ma'am. Born and raised in Jarden's system. Yet you are, um, Chief of Investigations for Montero Administration Security? She read this off her display questioningly, like it was as bizarre to her as it was to me. That is correct. She looked me over with what seemed like passive, confused eyes. That was misleading, since no one in her position would be either of those things. It gave a boost to the fear that I only fought down with a conscious will. Could you explain how you came to hold a senior position in a foreign nation's intelligence service? Our guests from over the border seem to be confused on this point as well, even though it's been confirmed to them by their superiors on Interstar. You have my testimony, ma'am, I replied as easily as I could, but it sounded dismissive to my ears as soon as it came out, so I hastily added, but the title is something of a misnomer. How so? Well, I'm the only person in the department. Yes, I saw that, she commented, gesturing at the blurry hologram. The question still stands. Or let me put it this way. Why are you so very trustworthy to the Montero Corporation's board of directors? You seem to have been elevated to a singular position, one that, at least ostensibly, outranks my esteemed friends here, who are actually citizens of corporate space. I helped safeguard some Montero assets and IP, I said. That buys a little trust. Not with everyone, she rejoined darkly through the distorted information hovering before her. I expected nerve packs and psych drugs, the one-two punch of extreme pain coupled with mind-altering chemicals generally proved quite effective in extracting information. When that didn't happen, I expected molecular mind charting so they could make a digital copy of my brain and attempt to get it to talk. This was more art than science, really, and largely disallowed as courtroom evidence, though the technique had its advocates. That didn't happen either. In fact, nothing happened for what seemed like a long time. I sat waiting in a gray-walled isolation cell, brightly lighted and warm, but utterly soundproofed and cut off. I saw no one. At third shift, a small, audible bell sounded and the ambient lights dimmed, though didn't go fully out. At first shift, the bell sounded once more, and they came up again. Food arrived with a different bell, 
from a slot on the wall. Simple frozen meals in trays. If the previous tray and utensils weren't dropped into the discard slot, no new food would be ejected. I knew this without being told, because prison dramas on the vid were a bona fide genre. After being arrested, I had been tape-cuffed and then stunned for the sake of easy handling. I woke up in a medical bay, with a technician in a team uniform hovering nearby. I knew instantly that I was now on a ship of some kind, artificial gravity having a distinctive feel from that of the centripetal force of spinning space stations. Spacers could tell the difference anyway. The tech pronounced me fit for walking, and several team guards led me off to a changing room. The comm ring was confiscated, of course, while my retinals and the implanted BoneCon speaker mics in my jaw were powered down and locked off by a handheld unit that overrode my own commands. They made me strip down, shower, and dress in gray pants and matching shirt from a shelf. I was given gray soft shoes. Then they led me to a wall that opened up when one of them touched a glowing plate, and I was ordered inside. I asked nothing and commented on nothing, and they did the same. Some people went crazy with this kind of isolation. That usually just happened to long-term prisoners. Such convicts were fairly rare these days, genre fiction notwithstanding, and virtually unknown outside of a gravity well. You did hear stories, though, of unhappy souls languishing in hidden facilities, victims of strange laws and complex circumstances. Those were just tall tales. But even if they weren't, I couldn't have warranted that kind of care. The usual response to criminal behavior, and industrial espionage was right up there with violent crime over here in corporate territory, was mental restructuring. Rather than punish a person for what they did wrong, most modern governments found it far cheaper, more effective, and efficient to alter the criminal brain so as to make the offense or offenses unlikely, even impossible, to be repeated. New cognitive patterns, carefully chosen to counter the negative behaviors that caused the crime to be committed in the first place, were overlaid onto the offender. Antisocial tendencies could be wiped out, compulsions could be quashed, negative or dangerously repetitive thought processes could be positively redirected. After this, it was standard practice for the prisoner to undergo a course of genetic remodeling that matched the newly tailored mental conditioning. This way, any destructive life patterns that had a genetic source, and which might therefore be passed along to future offspring, could be avoided. I should have gotten a trial, maybe even ambassadorial attention from AIN reps over here, but that was under normal circumstances. Almost eight shifts went by, roughly two and a half days, before the seamless door reappeared in the wall and four team guards came in. I was sitting on the toilet at the time. You'll need to come with us, sir. In a couple minutes, okay? Last night's frozen cutlet really didn't like me. They really didn't like that, but had little choice in the matter. Three of them stepped back outside while one waited there for me to finish. He must have been loving his job. 
When we finally got moving, I was tape-cuffed and marched through companionways much like my cell in both color and character. The only sound was our footsteps. We went through several hatches that opened at their touch, and then to a glassed-in guard booth. One of my escorts had to verify me with an ident and check off something on a screen in the wall before the final hatch opened. This led to a series of more companionways, far less industrial in color and lighting. Doors with nameplates lined both sides. People in uniform came and went, but no one paid any heed to the prisoner, except to let us all pass. At a door marked Conference Room 8, one of the soldiers knocked and then opened it with a button press. No one was there. Inside was a round table with eight chairs. I was told to sit, and I did. The guards stood to one side and we waited, though not for long. Within just a few minutes, the door opened again and several team officers walked in, as well as Brandon Erzga. He wore prisoner garb just like me, but was not cuffed. In fact, when he saw them on me, he said, We don't need those. A woman with more bars on her sleeve than anyone else in the room nodded to my guards, and one of them cut the tape with a cuff tool. Then they left when she waved them off. How are you doing? Brandon asked, sounding concerned. He needed a shave and looked bizarre in his prison uniform, but had retained his usual disciplined bearing. Not bad. Food could be better. You? I'm just happy to be straightening this out at last. That remains to be seen, Seven, the woman pronounced. To me, she said, I am CPS-08 Amanda Caselia, Corporate Security Counter-Espionage. We are aboard Caesar's Palace. You and your group put me in a very irritating position, Mr. DeSantos. Have we? Sorry. She seemed to doubt my words and turned to Brandon. Seven, you are very lucky that a secure memo arrived today from the board of directors mentioning you and your work here. I have no idea what to do with you at the moment. Letting us go is a good start. That can be arranged, but what will you do then? I'm under strict instructions from CPS-09 Admiral Mailbrot to handle all security investigations for this project. Do you understand that team is in charge here, not admin? My instructions come directly from CPM-10 Farlington. You didn't hear that name, he added to me as an aside. Who outranks 9 Mailbrot in the company hierarchy? Team is in charge because Admin says so. Admin also says that I and my own squad, of which only Ejok now remains, are to continue our work. It was supposed to be undercover, but I'll settle for independent. Oh, you will? That is wholly unacceptable to this command, Seven. You will cease and desist your investigative efforts immediately. You will turn over all your casework, you will reveal all your sources and leads, and you will explain, in full, 
each and every one of your theories and investigative strategies. Am I clear? No, ma'am, he replied, looking clam-like. This took her aback, and she said nothing for a moment. She looked at me as if to launch the same order, but I just pointed at Brandon and nodded. I'm one step away from locking you both up permanently, she warned, sounding incredulous that her threats and authority were being ignored. I'll ship you off to a prison so well hidden it doesn't even have a name. Is that what you want? Of course not, the Seven replied. But you aren't going to do that. Have you informed Admiral Mailbrot as to what's happening here? I'm... Still waiting on his orders, but you'd better believe he's not going to kowtow to some civilian boardroom joker playing spymaster. He'll be replaced out here if he doesn't. That's what I believe. Apparently, Admiral Mailbrot believed that too, because, much to CPS-08 Casselier's shock and chagrin, she received a comm call not ten minutes later while she was delivering another ineffectual dressing down. She was ordered to release us immediately and drop all investigations into our backgrounds and actions upon the station. This was a relief, obviously, but mostly because I didn't think my false corporate space itinerary would hold up under much scrutiny. Shady ladies sensor specialists made it look like I'd traveled here through normal means, but a few direct inquiries and requests for confirmation from civilian passenger liners would blow that fairy tale sky high. She explained her orders calmly and completely, somehow holding in her anger. But when we got up to leave, she raised a single vibrating index finger. Just so you don't misunderstand me from this point on, gentlemen. I despise the thought of another intelligence unit operating on this station, which is not under my direct control. You're right. You have the backing of some powerful people. But the degree of cooperation you will enjoy from this office going forward will reflect my feelings on this point. I strongly urge you to cultivate self-reliance. I was given my clothes and personal belongings back and had my retinals and bone cons unlocked. Brandon had to have a vid conference with CPS-09 Admiral Mailbrot himself and would return to the station later. He also wanted to try and smooth things a little with Amanda Casselier. <laughs> I wished him luck. I got a shuttle ride back to Mylag Vernier and was told not to say anything about anything to anyone. My first action, once aboard, was to head back over to my favorite coffee kiosk and grab a cappuccino, which I drank slowly. I wasn't sending any messages. That silly game was over. No, the coffee they'd served in the brig had been the standard powdered stuff, and I'd gotten spoiled by the fresh brew from this place. I sat at one of the alfresco tables, sipping slowly watching traffic roll by. It was like my arrest and detainment had never happened. I called Dieter. He picked up immediately, and from the background imagery, I could tell he was up on Shady Lady in the common room. 
Is this secure? He asked off to the side and got a reply I couldn't hear. Good. We can talk. Ejak, I bugged out as soon as I learned you were arrested. John and Stina picked it up on station chatter and called me. What happened? Spec sign stuff. They caught on to Brandon and me. That end of things is still playing out, otherwise we're all shipshape. He looked relieved to hear that, but also puzzled, though his follow-on commentary didn't pursue the topic. Our friends up here put in a retroactive transfer request and local termination notice for me, so it looks like I actually quit a while ago. I called everyone who needed to hear about it and acted like I'd told them all about it weeks back and they simply forgot. I don't think any of them bought it, but I don't think they cared either. What about you? I don't know yet. Speaking of our friends, how are they? Relieved to hear from you. By the way, I didn't get a chance to pick up the parts for your block and tackle. You'll need to do that and then retrieve the main package from that storeroom. Exactly how, I demanded quietly, studying the people who passed my little table. They all did so without looking my way, but that only made me nervous because I assumed someone had to be. No idea, but from here on out, you're on your own, at least until you can get that stuff to us. I'm supposed to be off the station now, so I can't risk being seen. Right, I sighed. I'll think of something and get back to you. I should probably visit soon and catch up. Yes, you probably should. I closed the connection and drank my coffee, watching the crowd, just watching the crowd. I took a stroll over to R&D. I really needed a shower and change of clothes, but I went anyway. The guards there had me sign and verify as usual, but didn't otherwise act as if my security status had changed. I strongly suspected that it had, but that it had also changed back. Gazo was off-shift, but CPS 07 Floyeen Nuellen wasn't, and she came trotting out from some nook or cranny as soon as I asked a guard standing around in the big bay to call for her. The new offices still weren't done, and didn't look any different from before, though there were still a bunch of busy technicians and construction bots up there making noise, so she motioned me over to the big conference room. A Gendis meeting was going on in there, which neither of us were authorized to attend, so we went back to the dark corner where weaponry was set up. A couple of the team officers in our sub-D were busy working on a blueprint file, so we finally just retreated off to one side. I was laughing mirthlessly about all this by the time she started whispering. Three days ago, India Parkwa called me up in the middle of the night to say that you'd been arrested, though she didn't say why. Thirty minutes ago, she calls again saying it was a mistake and to just forget it. She told me this comes from Admiral Mailbrat himself. Ejak, who are you? A man just barely treading water, I muttered, shaking my head. 
I can't talk about it, but I'm sure you expected that. I don't know if Gaza needs to be woken up for this, but if you could let her know... Already done. She hadn't left this place in days. I had to yell at her to go get some sleep. I left a message on her service. This, whatever this is, it isn't settling down, is it? Certainly not for me. This isn't my shift, Seven, but I need to do something. I won't sleep, and I don't want to think about anything involving people. I was really close to quitting R&D a few days ago, but I've had a chance to think it through. Maybe I can help those guys with the schematic? They could use it, she replied sadly, then laughed, a thing wholly unexpected. She had a donkey bray and immediately covered her mouth in embarrassment. For my part, I began to think of her as human for the first time. So much so, in fact, it snapped me out of my own funk. Suddenly, I was happy to be at work, happy to be somewhere someone really wanted me to be. Only one someone, maybe, but it was enough. I'd take it. The Fleety kids, puzzling over their diagram, weren't prepared to celebrate my return when Floy and I went back there. It was understandable. This was a plum assignment, and it only took a little standing out to secure a promotion. Instead, they loitered and watched me find no less than five integration trouble spots where they had seen none and come up with no less than five technical solutions. That's a power harmonic issue. See the spike? Pass that to the AI. Looks like a library problem. Just update the particle fractal profiles and it should be green across the board. Earmark this for hull design and drop it in their mailbox. Don't shake your head. Where are you going to put the missile caps? There's no room with this strut in the way. In point of fact, I showed them up more than five times and vaguely implied they were a bunch of knuckleheads. It was more than five times that I tried very hard to believe that this kind of work was why I was really there. Seven Newellen stayed with us for a while until she decided to go fight with hull design in person about my strut observation rather than let them ignore their inbox as they were wont to do. She didn't expect to be back soon. After another hour or so, I decided to call it quits and just left a message on her service to say I was leaving. The other members of weaponry seemed puzzled by and resentful of my wandering ways, but they weren't in charge of me and they certainly didn't want me there, so I ignored the looks and grumbles and just waved goodbye. I had more or less forgotten Jake Hammerhulse existed until he stopped me in my retreat. I don't know where he came from, but he pointed me over to his own office, which had escaped the remodeling requirements somehow, and we both converged on it. Heard you had some trouble with team, he grunted, stepping through the closing door. It was a misunderstanding. What about? I can't say. Can't or won't? He sat back in his well-worn chair, which creaked alarmingly. Can't and won't. I know you're my boss, Jacob, but this is none of your business. Sorry. Maybe I should make it my business, he snapped, though his voice didn't rise at all. He had little piggy eyes and a broad face that was begging for someone tougher than me to punch it. I don't care what you do at this stage. 
I replied offhandedly, starting to leave. What'd you say to me? He demanded, finally letting some volume loose and standing up, face going red with apparent fury. I walked back slowly. I could have your cross-border pass invalidated, DeSantos. I could have you kicked out of this system and right out of corporate space and... He stopped his rant in shock because I had placed a hand on his forearm very gently and leaned in close to his face. This is absolutely not the day to push me, Jake. I said it in a whisper, eyes locked on his. He didn't speak another word, nor even modify his stunned, porcine expression. After a moment, I smiled without any warmth, wished him good shift without any conviction, and left R&D without any delay. Barney was flabbergasted when I walked through the door to the apartment. Ejock, they told me you've been arrested. They questioned me for hours. Yeah, sorry about that. It was just a mistake on their part. He'd gotten home from work only a little while before and was already in his Viper's uniform. I commented on it. We have a game tonight. Come and cheer us on from the pub. They'll have it streaming. You can tell me what happened on the way. The idea of the pub was attractive, even though awkwardness centering around Layden was likely. That was no different than any other aspect of life, of my life specifically, so there was no sense in hesitating. I was a spy several times over, a thoughtless heel to someone who had shown interest, a prima donna among my peers. I was good at what I did, and I didn't care who cared about that. So I went to the pub. Layden was on duty and gave me the cold shoulder. I had a shot and a beer. My arrest had been the subject of gossip, and they tried to pump me for info, then promptly dropped it when I said I couldn't say anything. They were trained well. You couldn't work and live in such a place and not be. Corporate would fire you fast. It would ship you right out of the system, and it would sue you to extinction. I wasn't so well-trained, perhaps, but I could fake it. Sometimes. For a while. But my while was drawing to a close. And I knew it. John and Stina made up some credentials I could use in order to pick up the pulleys at the shipping office up on the hub, which was where they were languishing at the moment. The two specialists injected the appropriate permissions and ident data into the system, and it just went smoothly. The parts were in a bundle and made of high-stress plastic. They were very light. There was a braided polymer rope for it in another bundle that was surprisingly heavy. Dieter told me the minimum order for this cable had been a hundred meters. We only needed fifteen at most. I figured he required time to assemble the thing and make some sort of attachment for it inside the vent shaft, so I just brought it up to him the next night after work. 
John and Stina had somehow tapped into the station's entire sensor system. They were, after all, computer experts with lots of time on their hands. They were monitoring the companionway, remotely. They also popped the lock on the maintenance closet when I was near. I waited for a few people to walk by, then entered as usual, bringing my bundles. A pressure suit was in the shaft, as always, and in a few minutes, I stepped aboard Shady Lady like I was coming back home. Except that the place smelled bad now, a vague scent of rotten food and unwashed people. Bottles and packaging, as well as half-full takeout containers, were scattered around haphazardly. John wore the same jumpsuit as always, but it looked like he hadn't washed it the whole time we'd been here. That had been my job prior to going aboard station, since I was the only one with steward training, and apparently the tiny clothes washer was way too complex for him to tackle. Stina sat slouching in her chair at the table in just her underwear and a sweat-stained tank top. Her hair was a greasy-looking rat's nest. She stared blankly when I arrived and greeted everyone, but didn't return even this much civility. If her characteristic obtuseness had been a sign of other underlying personality or mental problems, the confinement here had allowed them to truly blossom. Chris, by contrast, looked clean and fit, as per his usual, though he'd let his beard come in. He looked like a stranger. Also, as usual, he bore a quashed but still distinctive measure of hostility towards me. Mavis's bed was closed up, and the freeze controls were active. Dieter came out from engineering in a dirty jumper of his own, though it was covered in recent lubricant and electronic fluid stains, sure indications that he was busy working and not sitting around in a hyper-focused funk. I gave him the block and tackle parts, and he got started with them right away. The wheels and ratchets inside the Primitive System's two cases snapped together easily. Dieter had designed them that way. But the threading for the cable was a definite puzzle. For the longest time, we couldn't figure out how the lines were supposed to be run through it. Eventually, Stina did a library search without any comment and brought up an ancient diagram of this exact process which proved invaluable. John only complained that she had covered part of a window for an important program he was working with, though it looked to me like he was playing a vid game. SS2 said nothing and just dismissed the diagram with a quick wave in the air when they finally had the cable laced through the blocks correctly, thereby forming the tackle. Up close, I could see that her eyes were bloodshot and could tell that at least some of the odor in the place was definitely hers. We have to get out of here, I stated flatly, as if this hadn't occurred to anyone. I'm working on it, thank you, the engineer replied, winding the extra cable up by hand. Yes, Chris added, his back to me. Some people are working on it. Hey, I spent two days in a brig on Caesar's palace, I returned. I count that as dues paid. They let you go, the mission leader said with a sidelong glance over his shoulder. Yes, they let me go. They got confirmation that I was with Specsign. Believe me, they were pissed off. 
Christmas laughed. <laughs> People mad at you? That has to be one of the normal states of the universe. Don't start with me. No one wants to be here. You can file a scathing report on my actions just as soon as we get back. I've been working on that for weeks now. It has an itemized list. I just update it whenever you do something ridiculous. Fine, I replied, sounding, I'm sure, like I didn't care. Because, really, I didn't. Dieter, when do you think this thing will be ready? I added, waving at the complex pulley. Well, I need to mount it to the shaft. How will you get the parts into the ship once you've hauled them up? The package is bulky, but it's made up of many parts. I can take it all up piece by piece. That won't be a problem once we're away from possible prying eyes. It's getting it into the closet and up the shaft where there's a risk. I think I'm being watched, I stated. You are, John put in from his side of the table. Team has an AI following you through station sensors. If it sees you doing something suspicious, it alerts a human. I do a lot of suspicious things. No, you don't, he countered with a shrug. We wiped most of its internal params. The AI ignores Team's criteria and just returns a green light for Ejok de Santos all across the board. You could set the place on fire and it wouldn't tattle. Someone has to be double-checking the sensor log. It's a massive stream, he dismissed, and you're just one of dozens of people they're keeping track of. Besides, we put some rotware into the AI system that targets anything tagged with your name or ident code. Slowly, the information becomes corrupted. Then it gets checked against the backup, like all data, and corrected automatically. And we control the backup stream. Essentially, no machine can watch you do anything. What about actual people, then? Flesh-and-blood investigators? Not my spash, he muttered, and returned to his game. I looked around at them slowly. Dieter took this opportunity to make himself a frozen meal, quietly, efficiently, and weirdly hung over, just like everything else he did. Christmas busied himself with some kind of report, possibly about me, but it would be arrogant to presume. John was wrapped up in his work, while Stina was doing something with a long, bracketed list of code. I was about to ask her what it was when, with eyes still glued to the hologram, she absently scratched an armpit, smelled her fingers, and licked them. I decided to busy myself with gunnery. Systems all came up fine, but the display showed a power fail for weapons, owing to Dieter's work with the engines. That was expected. I had juice enough for diagnostics and decided to run some basic checks. Port and starboard missile tubes and launch systems looked okay. Missile inventories in the tubes were okay. The multi-spec laser in the bow came back green as well, save for the electricity issue. This gun had a parallel capacitor system, which under normal circumstances could allow for a sort of rapid shot capability. Right now, the charge in the capacitor meant the weapon was capable of at least one attack, even with the power fail. There was nothing to target, of course, but it was comforting all the same. While the power issue had an easy explanation, what didn't was the stickiness of my workstation. 
Looking at an angle, I saw a dried ring of greenish fluid, as if left from some careless someone's cup of Wasserman. Nothing seemed to have been tampered with. I had installed some anti-intrusion software when I first came aboard. That was kind of standard. It didn't show that anyone had tried to compromise gunnery while I'd been gone. I had some wet wipes in there for keeping things dusted and nice. The sticky ring cleaned up fine. I wiped everything else down, too. After this, I went out to the common room and warmed up a meal of my own. It was wheat balls and pasta in some sort of bright red sauce that likely contained more food dye than tomato. Dieter had already gone back to engineering, and the others said nothing. Chris looked up with sullen glances once or twice, but that was it. Back in gunnery, with the door closed, I ate my meal without tasting it. A useful skill most spacers learn early in their careers. Someone had been missing with my duty station, even though the hatch had been locked. Only the captain could have overridden that through normal means, but the captain was in a coma and frozen down. Only an engineer could have bypassed the lock mechanism entirely to crank the door open by hand. But the engineer wasn't a slob. John or Stina could have cracked the lock routine, though. Or maybe even pulled the override codes from Mavis's head while she lay sleeping. It seemed very much within their overlapping skill sets. Just as getting by my own meager cyber defenses without leaving any trace would be. Still, I doubted either one of them would have done something like this, of their own accord. Which really just left Christmas Giordano. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.